0: 6 and 37 tonight. So, if you have kind of, uh, here with Isaiah for the first 35 chapters, got a little tired of all the prophecy and judgment, well then, the next few chapters are a little bit of a break for you because it kind of goes back to the narrative form to talk about what's going on. How many chapters, how many weeks in a row we talked about Isaiah saying the Assyrians are coming. Well, tonight they finally show up. So, he prophesied they were coming. He said it would be the destruction of Israel, the ten northern tribes, but he said Judah would be saved. Jerusalem would be saved. And what you have here in Isaiah 36 and 37 is the Assyrians showing up. The Assyrians making all the threats that of Isaiah said they would. And you know what? Let's just get the ending of the story. Jerusalem is saved. So it's a neat thing of prophecy that we see this being prophesied for the first 30 plus chapters. And then we see it all coming together here tonight. So, what we're going to do as we go through this is we're going to talk about Assyria and we're going to talk about their role and how they responded, how they reacted to everything with the Lord. But we're going to focus a lot in the second half of the lesson tonight on Hezekiah, who is the king of Jerusalem, of Judah at this time, and how his faith in the Lord got them through this. So, without much further ado, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Just so you know, a lot of tough names tonight. And remember the rule with names, as long as you say them confidently, no one ever knows the difference. So verse 1 of Isaiah 36, Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, Sene- king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabashka with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah, Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Elchium, the son of Hezekiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Aspha, the recorder, came out to him. Now, set the scene here for a little bit. What has happened, and and I think I've mentioned this before in one of the other studies, I have this great overhead of this picture, and I don't have it on the computer, or I would put it up there on the projector, but it's this great overhead which shows the world kingdom at this time. And Assyria is the world kingdom. It's the world power. No other power is around at this time. Assyria has taken out Babylon, excuse me, Assyria has not been yet defeated by Babylon. They are the world power, and they control the then known world except for every place except Jerusalem. And it's this fascinating map that shows the kingdom of Assyria with this tiny little circle that they don't control, and that's Jerusalem. And we're going to read about that tonight and why this world power was not able to destroy them. So, a little bit of background here for those who like the history. We're right around 700 B.C., right around 700 B.C., so about 2,700 years ago. Assyria has now come up to Jerusalem. They've conquered everything else. They're sitting at the gates of Jerusalem. And now they send this guy, verse 2. Now, depending on your translation, if you have good old King James, Rabshakeh, they make it sound like that's his name. It actually is more of a title. My new King James refers to him as, uh, where's the reference here, chief of staff. And if you have uh, NIV, it calls him a field commander. This is probably more of a title. This is the guy that's the head of the army, the chief of staff, if you will. So he now comes up to the walls of Jerusalem, and he gets ready to give them this speech. Well, what the king does is he sends out his three guys in verse 3, Elkim, Shebna, and Joah. They come out to see what has to say. Really what this is is diplomatic negotiations. The leader of the Assyrian army is getting ready to talk to Israel. Israel sends out their people to talk to them to find out what's going on. Now, obviously, Assyria just wants Jerusalem to surrender. Well, what's going to happen here? Verse 4. Then the Rapshaka said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of the broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, I will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your own part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Basically, what he says, very simply put, what are you guys going to do? I mean, this is a fact. Jerusalem could not defeat this army. There's no way around it. This army is immense. It is powerful. So what they're doing is basically just saying, guys, just surrender. Just give up. And if you surrender and give up, you pay us a tribute, we'll become your vassal. you become our vassal state. We'll give you 2,000 horses. We'll just make this an even exchange. You become our kingdom. You become our power. You guys give up. Now, he makes a lot of interesting points here. Verse 5 basically says you guys are going to say you have plans. You have no plans. Verse 6, you're going to trust in Egypt. Egypt is this little twig that if you lean on it, it's going to break. They can't protect you. And look at verse 7. You're going to say you trust in God. Now, look at the end of verse 7. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Isn't it fascinating what he's saying there? He's confused. See, what happened is Hezekiah came in and Hezekiah was trying to be a moral king. So Hezekiah took down all the false places of worship, all the false idols, all the false altars. Well, what happened here is Assyria looks at this and says, see, you guys are not even worshiping the Lord anymore. He's spiritually confused. What Hezekiah did was good. Hezekiah said, you're only going to worship at this altar now, Jerusalem, the temple. But he takes it as the wrong way. He takes it as a lack of power. Now, I just want to make a quick point about this. Isn't this the confusion of the world? I was listening to a Christian radio station yesterday, and they had on an atheist. And one of the reasons he says he's an atheist is because he can't figure out why a God of love and kindness will allow all this stuff to happen in the world. And he says that's the reason he's an atheist. He can't figure out why God would allow kids to get cancer why he would allow moral, decent people to suffer while other people get away with it. And that's his reasoning for it. Now, I heard that, and I thought, isn't that the world's confusion? They blame everything on God. He doesn't fully grasp and understand that we live in a fallen world, we live in a sinful world, so therefore there's things in this world that God doesn't like. There's things in this world that God doesn't want to happen. God doesn't want to see little kids get cancer either, but when we made the choice to sin, we brought sin into the world. And that sin into the world now has run rampant and the world is under the power of the enemy. It's not that God doesn't have power to take him out. God will eventually do that. We've read that in Revelation. We've studied it. But isn't that the world's confusion? They think they got it all figured out. They think they're so smart. And they're not. Verse 7, this guy thinks he's so smart. You're not even trusting in God anymore. You're taking down his altars. No, we took down the wrong altars. If anything, we're in a better spiritual strength position to repel you. And lastly, verse 9, You can't even fight me. There's no argument about this. The army of Assyria would be much stronger than Israel. But here's the thing that's really interesting. Look at verse 10. Have I not come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? Basically, it says in verse 10, I've done all this without God. But look at the last half. The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Here's the king, excuse me, the chief of staff, if you will, of Assyria, saying that God told him to go fight Jerusalem. So basically what he's saying is you're going to trust in God to rescue you when God himself came and told me to come destroy you. Now somebody's confused on this issue, isn't it? Well, jump back if you will real quick to Isaiah chapter 10. Keep your hand here in Isaiah 36 but let's go back to Isaiah chapter 10. Let's see what God did say about this. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff of whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation, against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, isn't that true? God sent Assyria to judge Jerusalem and Israel. That's true. This guy is not misquoting anything. The Lord sent him to do this job. But here's the problem with his style, if you will, of Christianity. He picks and chooses what he wants to hear. Because just jump down to verse 12 of the same chapter. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion, on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. See, he skips over all those prophecies. He just wants to listen to the prophecy that God raised them up to be a judgment for us. And he wants to ignore the fact that God says, once I'm done using you, I'm going to judge you. And also Isaiah through the first 35 chapters. How many times have you heard this? That God said, the northern tribes will be destroyed. Jerusalem and Judah, you guys will make it through it. You have to trust me. God said from the beginning, Jerusalem's going to make it. But He's going to say, I'm going to destroy the Assyrians. Stay in chapter 10. Jump ahead to verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, which is Jerusalem, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. Why? Because God says, i got this all under control. Now, this is what I like to call buffet-style Christianity. You just pick and choose what you want because it sounds good and tastes good. You don't want to accept the full thing. And isn't that what happens in the world today? People take a slice of grace, they take a slice of mercy, they take a slice of a God that's loving, but they want to reject everything with hell, sin, and judgment. Well, you're not getting the full picture then. It'd be great just to pick and choose the verses that you want. I'm going to pick the verses that talk about wealth and health and happiness and joy, and I'm just going to focus on those i'm not going to focus on any verses that deal with ramification of sin i'm not going to focus on any verse that says i need to put some effort into my christian walk i don't like that buffet isn't that the beauty of buffets all this food is out before you you can take whatever you want the boys right now they're reaching a point where they're starting to see things and dawn makes them eat uh certain things like they have to eat carrots they have to eat that type of stuff i loathe with the passion carrots i don't care if you cook it if you got it raw if it's covered in candy i hate carrots and Dawn says that I have to start eating carrots in front of the boys to hopefully be a good example. Here's the deal. She gives them two or three. I said, I'm only taking one. I'll eat one carrot just to prove a point. So the boys look at me and they say, why don't you have to eat three carrots? So my response is, when you're a daddy, you don't have to eat carrots. I don't care what your wife says. When you're a daddy, you don't have to do it. That's the beauty of buffet. If I go to a buffet, I'm telling you right now, I'm not taking a single carrot. I'm not going to do it. can't do that with the Bible, though. There are carrot verses in the Bible that I don't like. And I would really just like to skip over them. I'm reading through Proverbs right now. And Proverbs have certain verses that just hit you like a baseball bat. It's like, yeah, that's me. Boy, I hate that verse. But yet those are the ones you underline and mark and you write down in your journal because those are the ones the Lord's saying you need to work on. Well, the leader of Assyria here, he got it right that God raised him up to be a judgment force. Isaiah 10, 5 and 6. But he skipped over verse 12. He skipped over verse 24. He picked and chose what he wants. And that's why Israel doesn't have to be afraid. Because if you know the whole counsel of God's Word, you know the truth. You know the beginning. You know the end. You know the middle. But when you just pick and choose Scriptures, you're going to run into problems. This guy, he gets points in verse 10 for knowing something. But he should have known the whole story. The whole story is that he is going to lose. So, that's a little bit of background. Now, that's what Assyria wants to do. What's Israel's response? Well, we'd like to say that Israel's first response is of faith and strength, but the truth of the matter is Israel's first response is fear. Verse eleven. Then Alchem, and Joah said to Rabshake, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. See, back during Bible times, Aramaic was the language of royalty, and it was the language of diplomatic negotiations. See, what happens here is these three guys say, speak to us in Aramaic, not Hebrew, because if you speak to us in Hebrew, all the commoners are going to know what you're saying. And the commoners are going to get really scared. If you speak to us in Aramaic, we're the only ones that are going to know what you're saying, and we'll just tell everybody everything's good. See, isn't this also a picture of Christianity? Don't tell me the bad stuff. Just just skip over it. I don't want to hear it. Guys, sometimes we've got to hear the bad stuff. There are certain times where I wish the Bible would just speak in Aramaic. I don't want to know. Just don't tell me. But God says you need... To know. You need to know. How does he respond? Verse thirteen, the Rabshiketh stood up and called out with a loud voice, in Hebrew. He's not going to do the Aramaic thing. He knows he's got power. He knows he's got these people trembling. He knows the Assyrians are a powerful voice. Remember, this was the army, these are the people that would skin them alive. These are the people that would make mountains out of skulls. And those were in, if you would, the lucky ones. Because the unlucky ones had to go back to Assyria and slavery. And it was a horrible, horrible time. The Assyrians were known for their horror and what they would do. So this guy knows that he can intimidate the Jews. The Jews at this time, Jerusalem, they are not a strong army. They are not strong in any way whatsoever militarily. Syria knows this. We can intimidate them. We can bully them. We can push them around. Look at verses 18-20. through Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Syria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Serpium? Indeed, had they delivered Samaria from thy hand? Basically he's saying, don't tell me your god's going to win because we've defeated every god. See, look at the arrogance of them. Look at the arrogance. You have verses 4 and 5 of saying, what confidence in this do you trust? Where are you putting your plans in verse 5? Verses 18 through 20. What God can defeat us? Isn't this the arrogance of the world that they think they can get away with everything? I was listening to a great teaching the other day, and it was out of Proverbs 6, and it's about the seven abominations that God hates. And the first one that God picks is a proud look. Now, isn't that fascinating? Because if you would look today and you'd say, what are the things that God hates? You know, we have all have our moral causes and all our sins that we like to say, well, God hates this most of all. Isn't it interesting in Proverbs that he says pride? That's the first thing I want to mention is that I hate pride. But we don't think that pride is really that big a deal, is it? But pride is the stepping stone to everything else. Pride cometh before a fall. Pride cometh before destruction, depending on how your Bible says it. Because when you have pride, it takes God out of the perspective. Pride is, I don't need Him. I can do this on my own. Whatever problem I'm facing, I can take care of it on my own. Whatever situation's coming up, I can take care of it on my own. Now, none of us here would probably go that far, but there's also a pride in our spiritual matters too. I I don't really need to pray about that because I know where the Lord leads me and He's guiding me and I know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe you should pray about that and seek that out. Or you know what? I really don't need to spend a lot of time looking at this because God has so blessed me in this area and I'm so good at this area that it's not something I really need to worry about. There's a little bit of a spiritual pride there. And there's also pride in the form of humbleness. Have you ever seen the prideful, humble person that comes up and just keeps saying, I know I'm not that good. I'm not that good at it. I know I'm not really called to do it. I know that I'm not really good at this. People are better. And they want you to say, no, you are good. Or there's that prideful humbleness of I am such a horrible sinner. I am such a horrible person. How could God even love me? And they really are just saying, no, tell me how good I am. Pride can come in so many different perspectives, but the whole point is pride takes God off the throne, puts us on the throne, and it leads to arrogance and it leads to judgment. Assyria is prideful. They're trusting in their army. They're trusting in their past military might. They're trusting in their own understanding of Scripture. and They're trusting in their own intimidation. They think they can do it all, and the truth of the matter is they can't. Now, chapter 37 is the response of Hezekiah, king of Israel. And obviously he has a very good response here. But before we get into chapter 37, does any quick questions, comments, over the first half here that sets the scene for the rest of it? Okay, yeah, Ryan. Just a comment, more than a question. But uh, Hezekiah is a really fascinating person. You know, most of the kings of uh, Israel and Judah after the, the Civil War were really bad guys. You know, they followed, they didn't follow the Lord. and You know, there are so many coups. People getting assassinated—it's hard to keep track. But Hezekiah—he's one of the few kings in the latter years of the kingdom that actually did do God's will and tried, you know, his hardest to, you know, do good stuff. Along with, you know, a few other guys later, it's like Josiah. Josiah, yep. Well, you know, stands out among a bunch of bad kings. I've always liked Hezekiah because you're right there, Ryan. Hezekiah has great moments of victory. Chapter 37 is a great moment of victory in Hezekiah's life. The sad part is, chapter 38 is a great failure in Hezekiah's life. And then chapter 40 is a great failure in Hezekiah's life. The reason I like him so much is because I can relate to him. He has moments of great victory where it's like, finally, they got it followed by moments of where Hezekiah just really makes some stupid choices. But overall, Hezekiah is a good king. God rewards Hezekiah. God blesses Hezekiah. And even in Hezekiah's moments of failure in chapters 38 and 39, which we'll get into next week, he still has a relationship with the Lord. He still does. So he overall is one of the good kings of the kingdom of Judah. That's a good point there, right? Anybody else have anything to say here before we move on to the next point? Okay. So, what does Hezekiah do? Let's find out. Verse 1. So it was when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then Elkim, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amaz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and rebuke, and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the word, the Rabshakeh whom his master, the king of Syria, sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is isn't left. And so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Now, what does Hezekiah do? First thing that you see that Hezekiah does here, and this is very, very important, is he does three things that are right. First one, verse one, he's sorrowful. If you look at this, tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, went to the house of the Lord. This shows a sign of humbleness and repentance and sorrow. The first thing that we need to do sometimes when we're facing difficult times in life is to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do this one. I can't. Now, it doesn't mean that we've necessarily done something wrong where we need to repent, but this is a form of humbleness of the sackcloth and ashes. If anybody would see King Hezekiah, they would say, oh, this guy is humbled about something. What's going on? And I notice a lot of times in my Christian walk and also in other people's, when tough time comes, The first thing we don't do is usually humble ourselves and say, God, help me. We usually say, what do I need to do? I can take care of this. I can beat this problem. Boy, we can't. We have to humble ourselves. That's the first point. That's the next thing he does. Look at the end of verse 1. He went into the house of the Lord. My goodness, that's a great point to learn from. When trouble comes, what do you do? You go to the Lord. First thing you do is you go to the Lord. Before he asked Isaiah for counsel, he goes to God first. Why is it that we always treat treat God as the last ditch? Well, I tried this, I tried that, I talked to this person, I talked to that. And then you come to the church, you come to the pastor, and the pastor says, have you prayed about it? Well, no, not really. But that should be number one. So often we have everything backwards. When things are tough, we try everything we can first, and then we go to the Lord. Guys, that's a pride, that's an arrogance. We need to go to the Lord first. That's what Hezekiah does. After he goes to the Lord, then he does verse 2, he seeks godly counsel. Isaiah the prophet. What should we do? Once again, so often when people seek counsel, they don't seek godly counsel. They talk to the person they work beside. What do you think I should do? They call up mom or dad. It may not be saved. What do you think I should do? They call up that best friend that they've known forever. What do you think I should do? Why not go to the Lord? Why not go to a strong brother or sister in the Lord? Godly counsel. So often we seek counsel, but it's not from a good source. And you know what? Sometimes I look at some of the friends and co-workers and people that they're seeking counsel from and I'm thinking, come on, take a look at their lives. You really want their advice on issues? You really think that that person is going to point you in a godly way towards the right answer? No, you just like them because they're easy to talk to, they're fun to talk to, whatever. Boy, we need to seek godly counsel. What happens when he seeks Godly counsel. Do all the problems go away? Nope. Verse 10. Thus you shall shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? See, the problem didn't go away. People were still saying, give in. Just, just be done. Don't fight this. So he gets this letter. And this letter is full of bad news and threats and all this stuff. So, verse 9, this letter is from a guy in Ethiopia. If you look in verse 9, and the king heard concerning Terakah, king of Ethiopia. And he basically says, Hezekiah, don't fight him. Just be done. Now, isn't that, once again, the wisdom of the world? The world just says, just be done. You can't defeat this one. This one's too big. You've got to be done. Well what does Hezekiah do? He does an absolutely wonderful thing here. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Some of you are receiving letters left and right and it's not literal letters, but it's somebody telling you just to give up. It's somebody saying don't worry about working on the marriage. It's somebody saying this is never going to work out. It's somebody saying just be done. You need to take all that bad advice, all that bad counsel, all that stuff, lay it before the Lord and say, God, what do you want me to do? See, if you ask a hundred people, you get a hundred opinions. And so often, isn't that what we do? We just keep asking people until we get the opinion we want to hear? And the truth of the matter is we need to lay all this stuff before the Lord. There was a uh, talk show one time I was listening to on the radio. It was a call-in program, one of those advice programs. And a gal, gal called in and said, here's the problem. What do you think I should do? And the you know person answered, said, well, I think you should do this. And then she said, well, you know, that's what everybody else has said to do. And so the person leading the program said, well, why do you keep asking people what to do if everybody keeps saying the same thing? She goes, I'm just waiting for someone to tell me something different. And so then the host said, well, when this person tells you something different, what are you going to do? She goes, I'm going to do it. And so she came on and said, that, that's all? You just want somebody to tell you something? She goes, yeah, I'm waiting to hear what I want to hear. She was honest. And isn't that the truth? Don't we just keep asking people because we're winning to hear what we want to hear? The other day, I've t- joked with you before that um, I don't pick out my clothes. Dawn has told me what outfits go together. And so I know what tie goes with what shirt goes with what pants. So I was feeling frisky the other day and I picked out my own shirt and tie. I was so proud of myself. I went, I showed it to Dawn. Dawn says, that doesn't match. And I said, are you sure it doesn't match? She goes, yeah, it doesn't match. I said, look again. She goes, I've already looked. It doesn't match. I kept wanting her to say it looked good. And I was just going to keep asking, keep asking. Isn't that what we do sometimes? Come on, isn't this okay? No, it's not okay. I got a situation right now with a gal. It doesn't come out here, but I have a relationship with her, and she's in a situation that is biblically not right. And she just keeps asking me, like in thirty different ways, "Is this okay?" No, the Bible says it's not okay. I, I don't care how many times you ask it, and what ways you ask it, and what manner you ask it. God says it's not right. But isn't this what we do? We keep seeking counsel and advice, wanting to hear what we want to hear. Hezekiah just basically says, I'm not doing this. Verse 14, I'm laying this before the Lord. And then verse 15, I'm praying. I'm giving this one over to God. Verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. He says, I'm giving this one to the Lord. Which then takes us to the key verse, verse 20. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You are the Lord. You alone. See, that's the point. Hezekiah says, save us. Don't save us just to save us. Save us for Your glory. Now when's the last time that you prayed that? God, do this. Not because it benefits me. Do this because it benefits you in the kingdom of God. So often our prayers are so selfish, aren't they? Lord, I want this promotion. Why? Because it would be a better job with better pay, with better money. God may say, yeah, but it's also going to be more hours away from your family. It's not worth it. God may say, you can bring more glory to me by staying where you're at. Or, Lord, we really want this place. You know, we prayed for this house or this car whatever, and it's it's a great thing, and we want this. God says, no, that's going to lead you to greater problems. You're going to be able to serve me better right where you're at. I've seen Christians make such huge choices, changing jobs or moving, because it just looks better, it's better, it's closer, it's whatever, fill in the blank. And God says, maybe I don't want you to move. Maybe I don't want you to change jobs, because you can better serve me for my glory right here. See, Hezekiah is not saying save us to save us, Save us, so that way the world may know that you are the Lord. Verse 20. That that way they know. So what does He do? Verse 23. I just want to look at this passage here real quick. It's God's fight. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. See, isn't that neat? Assyria is not picking on Jerusalem. Assyria is picking on God. See, that's the whole point that Isaiah then tries to say, is Isaiah is trying to say, hey, Assyria, you're not just taking on Jerusalem, the Jews. You chose to take on God. Isn't that nice to know when you're fighting a battle in your life that, that whatever it is, you're not fighting it alone? See, isn't it amazing how many times as Christians we feel like we're fighting this battle by ourselves or alone Or God says, wait a second, what about me? You got me on your side. I mean, it's easy for us to look back here and see Jerusalem completely surrounded by Assyria and say, why are you guys worried? You have God. We well, you know how the story ends. But I bet you some of you right now are facing something, be it financial, be it spiritual, be it physical, and you're all worked up. Isn't the same God that saved the Jews from Assyria is the same God that's here? Isn't it His fight? Isn't it His battle? We've got to remember that. We don't have to fight this. We can just trust Him. Because where's the faith? Look at verse 30 of chapter 37. This shall be assigned to you. You shall eat this year, such as grows of itself. And the second year, what springs from the same... Also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. Now you may say, okay, well, how does that have to do with faith? The first thing that you see this is God says, for at least the next three years, you're still going to be around. Well, that's good news. Assyria is not going to defeat us because we're talking about eating for the next three years. But did you catch this? You would only catch this if you got the background in farming here. Verse, the first two parts of verse, excuse me, first year and the second year, they're not able to plant a crop. God says it's going to be a tough time Food's going to be limited, but I'm going to get you through. It's not going to be into the third year that you're going to be able to go out and reap and sow and plant. Well, God was saying is, you know what? I'm going to get you through it. It's going to be a tough time, but I'm going to get you through it. And I wonder how many of us tonight are going through a tough time and God says, I'm going to get you through it. it Maybe a rough time here for a while. You may have a season or two of difficult times, but by that third season, it's going to be okay. Do you trust me? Well, how does this end? Verse 36. CHAPTER thirty seven And the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians one hundred and eighty five thousand. And when people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So the king of Assyria departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nishkar, his God, notes God with the little G, his sons Adramelech and Shaarez struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. So God took care of it, didn't he? Now I don't know what the Jews were thinking. Obviously, Hezekiah and Isaiah knew that God was going to step in and do it. Did they think that in one night, 185,000 people were going to be killed? Isn't that amazing? God just says, you know what? The best way to defeat this problem is I'm just going to take care of it myself. There's no miraculous army of Gideon that steps in and takes care of it. You know, there's none of David's mighty men where one guy takes out 120 Philistines. God just says, you know what, let me just deal with this one all by myself. I'll take out 185,000 in one night. Now, isn't that nice to know that we have a God that when we're surrounded by the enemy, He still says, I can step in and take care of it. And the king of Assyria that was so prideful and arrogant is killed by his own kids while worshiping his false god. Judgment did come like God said it would. So, as you go through Isaiah, you may be thinking, We had 35 chapters of prophecy to get to this point. Well, some of those 35 chapters dealt with some other stuff, but isn't it nice to know God prophesied this is what's going to happen. Assyria is going to come, but they're going to be defeated. And in chapters 36 and 37, that's exactly what happened. God stepped in and defeated the enemy, and the Jews never had to do a single thing. What did Israel do to defeat the Assyrians? They did two things. They had faith and they prayed. That's all they did. God took care of the rest. It's a beautiful picture of trusting the Lord in a very difficult circumstance. Does anybody have any final questions, comments? Yeah, Megan.